This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Last month, in honor of the 10th anniversary of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we asked you to vote for your favorite episode from our first 10 years. What amazed us was that out of more than 120 episodes, 71 different podcasts got at least one vote, and most of them got many more than that. The final winner was an episode from 2012, in which David Sedaris read and discussed the story Roy Spivey by Miranda July. A great selection, and we're happy to re-release the episode now. Thank you to everyone who voted, and thank you to all of our listeners for making this podcast such a rewarding thing to work on. This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Roy Spivey by Miranda July. You slept for the first hour, and it was startling to see such a famous face look so vulnerable and empty. The story was chosen by David Sedaris, whose personal essays and humor pieces have been appearing in The New Yorker for nearly two decades. He's published eight books, including Me Talk Pretty One Day, Dress Your Family in Corduroy and Denim, and When You Are Engulfed in Flames. Hi, David. Hi, Deborah. So Miranda July published a story collection called No One Belongs Here More Than You a few years ago, and two of her stories have appeared in the magazine. But she's also perhaps better known as a film director and performer. She wrote, directed, and starred in two feature movies, Me and You and Everyone We Know in 2005 and last year's The Future. But what side of her work do you know best? I was not familiar with Miranda July until I picked up this New Yorker with her story in it. And I sat down to read the story, and I felt like I was a different person when I finished reading the story. It was exactly the kind of short story you want to read. I just felt so completely, mysteriously shaken up by it. And I thought, how, how have I lived without Miranda July <laughs> in my life? And so I went out, and I got her book. Yeah. I got it on audio, and she mm-hmm. read it. And she's a great reader of her own work. This story was not included in the no, book. it was later. Um, and, I, and I still enjoyed the book. And then yeah. I saw Me and You and Everyone We Know. And I was almost glad that I did it that way so right. I didn't have an image of her in my head. I mean, she's a lovely person, but I'm so glad not to know anything, just to pick up the magazine and, and read this remarkable story by someone who I, I knew nothing about. What was it about this story, Roy Spivey, that really just wowed you so much? I like the idea that it was just based on a brief encounter, a very simple brief encounter. It's two people in an enclosed space, and it can't continue more than the duration of the flight. And it's just such a good premise. So it's brief, and it has profound impact on the character's life. It's like Strangers on a Plane. That could be like a subtitle for it. Great. Well, we'll talk more after the story. Now here's David Sedaris reading Miranda July's story, Roy Spivey. Twice I have sat next to a famous man on an airplane. The first man was Jason Kidd of the New Jersey Nets. I asked him why he didn't fly first class, and he said that it was because his cousin worked for United. Wouldn't that be all the more reason to get first class? It's cool, he said, unfurling his legs into the aisle. I let it go because what do I know about the ins and outs of being a sports celebrity? We didn't talk for the rest of the flight. I can't say the name of the second famous person, but I will tell you that he is a Hollywood heartthrob who is married to a starlet. Also, he has the letter V in his first name. That's all. I can't say anything more than that. 
think espionage, okay? The end, that really is all. I'll call him Roy Spivey, which is almost an anagram of his name. If I were a more self-assured person, I would not have volunteered to give up my seat on an overcrowded flight, would not have been upgraded to first class, would not have been seated beside him. This was my reward for being a pushover. He slept for the first hour, and it was startling to see such a famous face look so vulnerable and empty. He had the window seat, and I had the aisle, and I felt as though I were watching over him, protecting him from the bright lights and the paparazzi. Sleep, little spy, sleep. He's actually not little, but we're all children when we sleep. For this reason, I always let men see me asleep early on in a relationship. It makes them realize that even though I am five feet eleven, I am fragile and need to be taken care of. A man who can see the weakness of a giant knows that he is a man indeed. Soon, small women make him feel almost fey, and lo, he now has a thing for tall women. Roy Spivey shifted in his seat, waking. I quickly shut my own eyes and then slowly opened them, as if I too had been sleeping. Oh, but he hadn't quite opened his yet. I shut mine again and right away opened them, slowly. And he opened his, slowly, and our eyes met. And it seemed as if we had woken from a single sleep, from the dream of our entire lives. Me, a tall but otherwise undistinguished woman. He, a distinguished spy, but not really, just an actor. But not really, just a man. Maybe even just a boy. That's the other way that my height can work on men, the more common way. I become their mother. We talked ceaselessly for the next two hours, having the conversation that is specifically about everything. He told me intimate details about his wife, the beautiful Ms. M. Who would have guessed that she was so troubled? Oh, yeah, everything in the tabloids is true. It is? Yeah, especially about her eating disorder. But the affairs? No, not the affairs, of course not. You can't believe the bloids. Bloids? We call them bloids or tabs. When the meals were served, it felt as if we were eating breakfast in bed together. And when I got up to use the bathroom, he joked, You're leaving me. And I said, I'll be back. As I walked up the aisle, many of the passengers stared at me, especially the women. Word had traveled fast in this tiny flying village. Perhaps there were even some Lloyd writers on the flight. There were definitely some Lloyd readers. Had we been talking loudly? It seemed to me that we were whispering. I looked in the mirror while I was peeing and wondered if I was the plainest person he had ever talked to. I took off my blouse and tried to wash under my arms, which isn't really possible in such a small bathroom. I tossed handfuls of water towards my armpits and they landed on my skirt. It was made from the kind of fabric that turns much darker when it is wet. This was a real situation I had gotten myself into. I acted quickly, taking off my skirt and soaking the whole thing in the sink, then wringing it out and putting it back on. I smoothed it out with my hands. There, it was all a shade darker now. I walked back down the aisle being careful not to touch anyone with my dark skirt. When Roy Spivey saw me, he shouted, You came back! And I laughed, and he said, What happened to your skirt? I sat down and explained the whole thing, starting with the armpits. He listened quietly until I was done. 
So, were you able to wash your armpits in the end? No. Are they smelly? I think so. I can smell them and tell you. No. It's okay. It's part of showbiz. Really? Yeah. Here. He leaned over and pressed his nose against my shirt. It's smelly. Oh. Well, I tried to wash it. But he was standing up now, climbing past me to the aisle and rummaging around in the overhead bin. He fell back into his seat dramatically, holding a pump bottle. It's Febreze. Oh, I've heard about that. It dries in seconds, taking odor with it. Lift up your arms. I lifted my arms, and with great focus, he pumped three hard sprays under each sleeve. It's best if you keep your arms out until it dries. I held them out. One arm extended into the aisle, and the other arm crossed his chest, my hand pressing against the window. It was suddenly obvious how tall I was. Only a very tall woman could shoulder such a wingspan. He stared at my arm in front of his chest for a moment, then he growled and bit it. Then he laughed. I laughed too, but I did not know what this was, this biting of my arm. What was that? That means I like you. Okay. Do you want to bite me? No. You don't like me? No, I do. Is it because I'm famous? No. Just because I'm famous doesn't mean I don't need what everyone else needs. Here, bite me anywhere. Bite my shoulder. He slid back his jacket, unbuttoned the first four buttons on his shirt, and pulled it back, exposing a large tan shoulder. I leaned over and very quickly bit it lightly, and then picked up my Sky Mall catalog and began reading. After a minute, he rebuttoned himself and slowly picked up his copy of Sky Mall. We read like this for a good half hour. During this time, I was careful not to think about my life. My life was far below us, in an orangey-pink stucco apartment building. It seemed as though I might never have to return to it now. The salt of his shoulder buzzed on the tip of my tongue. I might never again stand in the middle of the living room and wonder what to do next. I sometimes stood there for up to two hours, unable to generate enough momentum to eat, to go out, to clean, to sleep. It seemed unlikely that someone who had just bitten and been bitten by a celebrity would have this kind of a problem. I read about vacuum cleaners designed to suck insects out of the air. I studied self-heating towel racks and fake rocks that could hide a key. We were beginning our descent. We adjusted our seat backs and tray tables. Roy Spivey suddenly turned to me and said, Hey. Hey, I said. Hey, I had an amazing time with you. I did too. I'm going to write down a number, and I want you to guard it with your life. Okay. This phone number falls into the wrong hands, and I'll have to get someone to change it, and that is a big headache. Okay. He wrote the number on a page from the Sky Mall catalog and ripped it out and pressed it into my palm. This is my kid's nanny's personal line. The only people who call her on this line are her boyfriend and her son. So she'll always answer it. You'll always get through, and she'll know where I am. I looked at the number. It's missing a digit. I know. I want you to just memorize the last number, okay? Okay. It's four. We turned our faces to the front of the plane, and Roy Spivey gently took my hand. 
I was still holding the paper with the number, so he held it with me. I felt warm and simple. Nothing bad could ever happen to me while I was holding hands with him. And when he let go, I would have the number that ended in four. I'd wanted a number like this my whole life. The plane landed gracefully like an easily drawn line. He helped me pull my carry-on bag down from the bin and looked obscenely familiar. My people are going to be waiting for me out there, so I won't be able to say goodbye properly. I know, that's all right. No, it really isn't. It's a travesty. But I understand. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. Just before I leave the airport, I'm going to come up to you and say, Do you work here? It's okay. I really do understand. No, this is important to me. I'll say, Do you work here? And then you say your part. What's my part? You say, No. Okay. And I'll know what you mean. We'll know the secret meaning. Okay. We looked into each other's eyes in a way that said that nothing else mattered as much as us. I asked myself if I would kill my parents to save his life, a question I had been posing since I was 15. The answer always used to be yes, but in time all those boys had faded away and my parents were still there. I was now less and less willing to kill them for anyone. In fact, I worried for their health. In this case, however, I had to say yes. Yes, I would. We walked down the tunnel between the plane and real life, and then, without so much as a look in my direction, he glided away from me. I tried not to look for him in the baggage claim area. He would find me before he left. I went to the bathroom. I claimed my bag. I drank from the water fountain. I watched children hit each other. Finally, I let my eyes crawl over everyone. They were all not him, every single one of them. But they all knew his name. Those who were talented at drawing could have drawn him from memory, and everyone else could certainly have described him if they'd had to, say to a blind person, the blind being the only people who wouldn't know what he looked like. And even the blind would have known his wife's name, and a few of them would have known the name of the boutique where his wife had bought a lavender tank top and matching boy shorts. Roy Spivey was both nowhere to be found and everywhere. Someone tapped me on the shoulder. Excuse me, do you work here? It was him, except that it wasn't him, because there was no voice in his eyes. His eyes were mute. He was acting. I said my line. No. A pretty young airport attendant appeared beside me. I work here. I can help you, she said enthusiastically. He paused for a fraction of a second and then said, Great. I waited to see what he would come up with, but the attendant glared at me as if I were rubbernecking and then rolled her eyes at him as if she were protecting him from people like me. I wanted to yell, it was a code, it had a secret meaning. But I knew how this would look, so I moved along. That evening, I found myself standing in the middle of my living room floor. I'd made dinner and eaten it, and then I had an idea that I might clean the house. But halfway to the broom, I stopped on a whim, flirting with the emptiness in the center of the room. I wanted to see if I could start again, but of course I knew what the answer would be. The longer I stood there, the longer I had to stand there. It was intricate and exponential. I looked like I was doing nothing, but really I was as busy as a physicist or a politician. I was strategizing my next move. 
that my next move was always not to move didn't make it any easier. I let go of the idea of cleaning and just hoped that I would get to bed at a reasonable hour. I thought of Roy Spivey in bed with Ms. M. And then I remembered the number. I took it out of my pocket. He had written it across a picture of pink curtains. They were made out of a fabric that was originally designed for the space shuttle. They changed density and reaction to fluctuations of light and heat. I mouthed all the numbers and then said the missing one out loud. Four. It felt risky and illicit. I yelled, four, and then moved easily into the bedroom. I put on my nightgown, brushed my teeth, and went to bed. Over the course of my life, I've used the number many times. Not the telephone number, just the four. When I first met my husband, I used to whisper, four, while we had intercourse because it was so painful. Then I learned about a tiny operation that I could have to enlarge myself. I whispered four when my dad died of lung cancer. When my daughter got into trouble doing God knows what in Mexico City, I said four to myself as I gave her my credit card number over the phone, which was confusing, thinking one number and saying another. My husband jokes about my lucky number, but I've never told him about Roy. You shouldn't underestimate a man's capacity for feeling threatened. You don't have to be a great beauty for men to come to blows over you. At my high school reunion, I pointed out a teacher I'd once had a crush on, and by the end of the night, this teacher and my husband were wrestling in a hotel parking garage. My husband said that it was about issues of race, but I knew. Some things are best left unsaid. This morning, I was cleaning out my jewelry box when I came upon a little slip of paper with pink curtains on it. I thought I had lost it long ago, but no, there it was, folded underneath a dried-up carnation and some impractically heavy bracelets. I hadn't whispered four in years. The idea of luck made me feel a little weary now, like Christmas when you're not in the mood. I stood by the window and studied Roy Spivey's handwriting in the light. He was older now, we all were, but he was still working. He had his own TV show. He wasn't a spy anymore. He played the father of 12 rascally kids. It occurred to me now that I had missed the point entirely. He had wanted me to call him. I looked out the window. My husband was in the driveway vacuuming up the car. I sat on the bed with the number in my lap and the phone in my hands. I dialed all the digits, including the invisible one that had shepherded me through my adult life. It was no longer in service course it wasn't. It was preposterous for me to have thought that it would still be his nanny's private line. Roy Spivey's children had long since grown up. The nanny was probably working for someone else, or maybe she'd done well for herself, put herself through nursing school or business school. Good for her. I looked down at the number and felt a tidal swell of loss. It was too late. I had waited too long. I listened to the sound of my husband beating the car mats on the sidewalk. Our ancient cat pressed against my legs, wanting food, but I couldn't seem to stand up. Minutes passed, almost an hour. Now it was starting to get dark. My husband was downstairs making a drink, and I was about to stand up. Crickets were chirping in the yard, and I was about to stand up.
That was David Sedaris reading Roy Spivey by Miranda July. The story appeared in the June 11, 2007 issue of The New Yorker and was published in the anthology The Book of Other People by Penguin. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. That's just the saddest thing in the world. This is, <laughs> this is your reaction to reading the story. That is my reaction. It is, I feel like I was as devastated as the character was at the end of that story. So for you, this is a very unhappy ending. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, she says that it had, the number had shepherded her through her adult life, so it had gotten her this far, but now she's going to have to figure out how to get from here until the end. So she was on the plane. She had this encounter. She was given this number and completely counterintuitively understood the number to be some kind of lucky talisman rather than an actual phone number to use. How did this change her life? Why did this overcome this strange inertia she's been suffering from? I mean, she knew that it, the number four was the last number of the number, but she was just holding that out like, well, I can call him. If things get bad, I'll just call Roy. He'll remember me. Do you think that's what it is? Because it's only in that last scene where she says, ah, you know, I've realized he actually meant me to call him. <laughs> you know, it seems that she doesn't think of it that way for her entire life. But the hope that she could have called or mm -hmm. the thought that that would be like an exit strategy for her lifeline, you know, yeah. just that it was there and then finding out that it's actually not there. You know, like you break up with somebody and then you think, well, I know they still love me. So in a pinch, you know, if things don't work out in a couple of years, <laughs> I just snap my fingers and I can have that person back. And then that person gets married and has kids Maybe it's the same way you feel, like, now it's really too late. Like, I've been yeah. using them as my lifeline, yeah, and it's too late. What do you think about the voice in this story? You know, this woman, at no moment in this story is she what we would expect a woman in this situation to be. And she's very strange, you know? She, she freezes in the middle of her living room. She has herself enlarged so the sex isn't painful. She clings to this number four for her whole life. She has this certain, I don't know if it's naivete or, or what it is exactly. What, what do you think it is? Well, I love when she washes her skirt in the bathroom sink because sometimes, like if you're a, like, so I'm 55, right? And so this happens to a lot of men when they're 55, that you pee, uh -oh. and then it's like turning a faucet off, but the washer wears out. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so there's like some dribble, right? And it just happens after a certain age. So then you are, there you are in the airport wearing khaki pants, and then you look down, and you have a stain on the front of your pants. So <laughs> I do this thing where 
I splashed water all over myself to make it look like I had a sink accident. You know, like <laughs> the water came out too forcefully and splashed. So the story it. just really spoke to you. <laughs> and I love that she washes the entire thing. She washes the entire skirt in the sink. You know, we learn early on that she's tall. She says later, you don't have to be a great beauty for men to fight over you. So to be a tall woman, I think, is really difficult because, you know, like when people see a tall woman from behind and then... You know, they walk a little faster so they can see her face and, you know, so they can turn around and say, you ought to model, you know, so they feel like they can take some responsibility. But then to be a tall woman and like to not be attractive, I just feel like the world would be saying, you were supposed to be prettier. Right. So we know that about her. We know that she has this condition where she often can't move. We know that she has a cat. <laughs> I mean, we really don't know... She says, okay, a lot. You know, she's not a terribly forceful person. But all of that just makes me love her more and more. But I, I feel like Miranda's lie is really taken like someone said, okay, six little details. Create somebody who's mm -hmm. alive. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like she's done a fantastic job. Maybe what she's doing is just bouncing that character off of Roy Spivey, you know, just bouncing. So it's a character is made of a reflection of somebody else. Well, she she certainly has things that are hers alone, which is the the fact that she is this locked up person. She's given this number, this number four. It somehow mysteriously unlocks everything, and she can go on and get married and have a child and have a functional life, which she didn't seem to have so much beforehand. And then she finds the number again. She dials the number. It's disconnected. It doesn't work anymore. As you were saying, she's lost her lifeline. Is she now going back to inertia? Is she now going to freeze forever? And that's what, it, that's what you well, think that's what in those Well, that's what we see her at lines. the very end of the story. Yeah. You know, she's just frozen and unable to get up off the bed. But I felt like this was a really good place to end the story. I feel like she will get up. This is just mm -hmm. going to be, it's a big stumble. And do you think that Roy Spivey has suffered by not hearing from her? No, I think he does that all the time. I mean, I think... <laughs> oh, this wasn't anything special for him. There was something about him that I feel like he was almost aware of the pleasure that he was giving her. Mm -hmm. I, I felt like there was something slightly self-conscious about his playfulness, I suppose. And I thought she did a really fantastic job with that. There's something else going on which happens in, in Miranda's movies as well, which is she plays on this sort of friction between real life and fiction. So she starts the story off by saying, I've met two celebrities on the plane. One was Jason Kidd, who's a real person. And the other one was this person I'm not going to name. I'm going to give you these clues. Are we meant to think this is a real actor? See, I didn't know who Jason Kidd was. So. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> You've been living out of New York for too right. long. <laughs> no, I wasn't distracted by that. I wasn't yeah. trying to think... You know, she said it's almost an anagram of his name, so who could that be? You know, after the story came out in the magazine, there were a bunch of people online trying to actually figure out who this really, oh, really? was by by turning letters around and making guesses, as though this were fact. I mean, I know what that's like to be distracted by something like that in a story, yeah. but I feel I felt like the story was so powerful, that was like the last thing on my mind. You weren't picturing Tom Cruise or Harrison Ford? or mm -mm. No, I didn't <laughs> even know... You know, she talks about his face, seeing such a famous face look vulnerable when he's asleep, but 
she doesn't say that he's handsome. I think that it's mm-hmm. more that he's famous. It's one of those situations where that's enough. A famous person paid attention to her. And I feel like she would have had greater disappointment if she ever had called him. Right. You know, that it would have either he would not remember who she was or he would maybe just want to to have sex with her or something. And I, f- I feel like greater disappointment would have come mm-hmm. with calling him right. than with hiding that number and not telling her husband the source of the lucky four in her life. So it just postponed it, really. Mm-hmm. You know, it, the disappointment was postponed to this late date. To this late date, at which yeah. point maybe she can handle it. Yeah. The exchanges between her and Royce Bybee are so hilarious. Do you think of this story as a comedy, tragedy, love story, satire of celebrity life? Is it all of those things? I you think came away weeping, so maybe I, you I don't think, think it's, think funny it's a comedy. When he <laughs> says, we call them bloids or tabs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I laughed out loud. Yeah, at, and, and when he pulls out the like. Febreze. Yeah, and then he, he almost <laughs> quotes an advertising line yeah. from the Febreze. But like when I was trying to think of a story... Like Lori Moore is somebody who I get so excited when I see Lori Moore's name. And when you try to take apart a Lori Moore story, it's joke, 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 joke. And then at the end, you're devastated. And you think, how did she do that? And I feel like Miranda July did the same thing. Like I'm laughing, I'm laughing, I'm laughing. And at the end, I'm just devastated. July seems to hit a nerve with people. She has these absolutely rabid fans who love everything she does. And then... The flip side is people who really can't stomach it and just complain she's too quirky or she's too twee or she's too this or that. Why do you think there's such a polarity in the responses to her? I think that people who don't like her are just jealous. That's <laughs> what I think it is. I really do. I, she's so talented. I mean, it seems to me more than, more than with just your average talented person, she gets responses at opposite ends of the spectrum. Not very much in the middle. No one's really indifferent. Either you really love Miranda July or you can't stand it. I mean, it's it's a funny dichotomy, I've noticed. You know, I was the last person on earth to get the internet. Like, I had a computer, <laughs> but it wasn't hooked up to the internet. Yeah. I just didn't know that all this stuff existed, mm-hmm. you know? And so then I, now I, I look at things online, and then I read the comments. And, and then I think, really? You really feel that strongly about <laughs> that? Per- you know, you really... Yeah. Have and and I feel like women get it more than men, and you know it's sort of like the Lena Dunham, right. like well, really, what's your what is your problem? I think it's interesting that you made the parallel with Lena Dunham. I, there there is a certain amount of just hostility that gets shot at a woman who makes herself central in her work. I think what they share is this sort of refusal to be embarrassed about who they are. And hmm. and people like women in the spotlight either to be perfect or to be embarrassed not to be perfect. You know, it's what you, what you were saying about this character being so tall and yet plain. And somehow she's a disappointment. You know, if she once you see the face, she's a disappointment. And maybe she should retreat because of that. I think there's a certain But you judgment. might be right is that the not caring mm-hmm. seems to irritate people more. But it's like, didn't you read about how much I hate you? Like, <laughs> no, I'm not. I don't read any of that stuff because I don't really care that you hate me. Yeah. Maybe that just enrages people even yeah. more. Maybe they'd much rather read that, you know, after the, after I read those comments, I decided to stop making movies Yeah. because a couple people really don't like me. <laughs> <laughs> Her quirkiness, if that's a word, 
of her characters doesn't feel studied to me. Mm-hmm. It seems organic to me. It doesn't feel overdone to me. It doesn't feel doesn't feel cute to me. I just think she's very really interesting, and I think she has a really interesting career, and it doesn't seem like anyone else's to me. Well, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. David Sedaris's most recent book is Theft by Finding, Diaries, 1977 to 2002. A new collection of essays titled Calypso will be published in May. You can download more than 120 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcast section of the iTunes Store. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.